Good morning. How y'all doing? By the way, before we get started, let me just ask a couple quick questions here. How many of you are parents? Okay, quite a few. How many of you are not? It's perfect, right down the middle. Um, What we're going to talk about is uh, what I believe are five things. You'll notice on your notes, you can pull those out. I've entitled the message, How to Prepare Your Kids to Win Life's Biggest Battles. And what I want you to know that if you're not a parent, in fact, if you're single, uh, not married, or even married and no kids, I want you to listen through this lens. You have a heavenly father And the five things we're going to talk about are like on his top five agendas to develop in your life. So you can listen to this and realize, you know, you know, doesn't have anything to do with parents. This is what God wants to teach me to make me like his son. If you are a parent, whether your child is two, seven, 12, 22, or for some of us, me being included, you have kids in their 30s. He's still wanting to teach them exactly the same things. You just apply it in different ways. We are in a tremendous war for the souls of our kids. And God is in a war over you. And he loves you deeply. Now, as we wrap up this whole series, um, A, I am Ryan's dad. Great privilege. And Jenny's father-in-law. Second is, I didn't grow up as a Christian. Uh, My dad was a very functioning, but he was an alcoholic. So I came out of an alcoholic home. Uh, My wife uh, went through a a very difficult childhood, and uh, her dad was a a very non-functioning, absent, alcoholic father. And so uh, we both came to Christ in our adult years. Uh, We got married. We did not have a clue how to be a Christian couple. We had no idea how to parent. And so we literally got very, very serious about, God, what does your word say about marriage and being and we worked really hard, had to go to marriage counseling to kind of work out some of the things and develop some things. And so uh, after about 30 years of being a pastor and counseling thousands of people, if you kind of put a gun to my head and said, of all the things that parents should really embed in the life of their kids, these would be the five things. And so uh, th- this is, by the way, I'm going to tell you in advance, this is way too much material for a single message. Actually, it, it sort of developed about 20 years ago, and then I ended up doing a series where I have a message on each one of these, and you might write on the top of your notes, you can write download is the name of the series, and uh, if you want to get that, I think there's a website, Living on the Edge, if uh, you want to download the MP3s or something. Father, you know who's in the room, and you know what you want to do in our life. God, I ask that you'd fill me afresh with your spirit and that the words that I speak would be the words that you once said. And Lord, I pray that you would open the minds and the hearts of the men and women in this room to grasp how good and how kind and how holy and what your agenda is for their life, for your glory and their good. Amen. Uh, It says in the top of your notes, God's been in the business of helping children defeat the evil giants in their world for a long time. And I'm going to suggest there's some really big, difficult things. And here's the five things, kind of five smooth stones. The most classic picture, David, Goliath, he picks up the five stones, defeats the giant. Number one is teach your kids, or for those of you that are single or without kids, here's what God wants to teach them to suffer well. That's odd, isn't it? As a parent, teach your kids to suffer well. Let me give you a theology of suffering. Uh, Life is hard, but God is good. It's a fallen world, right? Sin has entered the world. 
The second is uh, life is unjust, but God is sovereign. I mean, your, your kids, in fact, we all do this right. That's not fair. I can't believe it. That's so unfair. I've worked harder. I'm a lot better player, but you know, he or she gets to, the coach's son or daughter, they get to play and I don't. Or I studied and I didn't cheat and I did exactly, I did everything you're supposed to do and so-and-so got the job instead of me and they cheated. Life's not fair. Help your kids early on and you get, life is not fair, but God's in control. You go around thinking that life is fair and things ought to be this way or that way, you live with decimated expectations and discouragement. In the Old Testament, um, the theology is developed in Joseph's life. In Joseph's life, if you remember, I'll very quickly, remember, his brothers betray him. He has the, you know, he's the youngest son at the time before then Benjamin comes later. And uh, he has these dreams that God gives him. And God's going to use Joseph in a great way, but his brothers betray him, they're going to kill him, but then they decide to sell him, gets on a caravan, and he goes to Egypt. So he's betrayed. He ends up in Potiphar's house, and everything he touches is blessed. And then Potiphar's wife comes on to him and accuses him of rape. Now he's lied about injustice. Then he's put in prison, and he's in prison, and they put him over the prison eventually, and everything goes great. And then uh, the baker and... Uh, the uh, cupbearer of the king, Pharaoh, come, and he's forgotten. He helps them, and one of them is killed. He's forgotten. So get this. You're betrayed by your family. You're falsely accused of rape. You end up in prison. You're completely forgotten. And that's about a 12-year span, about 18 to 30. Chapters 37 through 50 are all about one man's life. In the book of Genesis, contains all the core theology of what God wants us to know about everything about beginning. 26% of the book is about God is good, life is hard, life is unjust, but God is in control. If his brothers would not have betrayed him, he would not be in Egypt. If he wasn't in Egypt, he would not have ended up in Potiphar's house. If he would not have been falsely accused, he would have never made it to prison. If he would have never made it to prison, he would have never met the baker and the cupbearer. If he would not met them and been forgotten by them, he would not ended up the second most powerful person in the world and fulfill all God's agenda. Imagine, picture yourself like a seed that has all this potential, but it has a hard covering. And God uses adversity in your life or in the life of your children, but the goal of adversity is not to crush you. It's to produce character and trust and perseverance and, and, and to eliminate pride. And what happens is then that seed becomes a beautiful flower. Joseph became a man of great character and dependency. And he was able to handle the wealth and the power and do it for God's glory because the suffering had prepared him. Most parents unconsciously try to protect your kids from all the difficulties of life. You want to make everything okay. You want to make them comfortable. I don't want my little girl to suffer. Oh, I, oh, just, you know, you want to protect them from everything. The, the giant, I think, that you have to slay in our day and age is the giant of entitlement. We live in a world, I, I actually told Ryan, I almost, I didn't do it. I don't know you all well enough. Sometimes I use props where I'm from, and I would have a long table, and for the first giant, I would have a little trophy a little entitlement trophy. You didn't show up to practice. You didn't work very hard. You were on the losing team, but I want you to know you're special because everybody gets a trophy. 
You deserve a trophy. No matter what you do, you, you got a bad attitude, you deserve a trophy. Everyone deserves a trophy because self-esteem is what life is all about. And then you grow up and you go into a real world and you think you're entitled. And when all of us meet people at work or friends that feel like they're entitled and everyone owes them a life and they ought to be treated special all the time regardless of how they treat people, what do we think? Right? We can't stand to be around them and they're narcissistic. Teach your kids to suffer well. First Peter um, gives us the example in Christ. Chapter 2, 21 to 23 says, are you ready for this? To this you were called. Talking about suffering. You ever think about that? Your kids are called to suffer. For Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When insults were hurled at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Help your kids grow through suffering. The life message is that suffering is normal. See, we have people that their whole life is, why is this happening to me? Either I've done something terribly wrong or God's unjust. How could this happen? Suffering is normal in a fallen world. And if you teach your kids to suffer well, you'll prepare them to respond in the right way. Most people in suffering blame someone else. Most people in suffering, you know, it's, it's the education's fault, it's her fault, it's their fault, it's my parents' fault. They blame everybody else and they never grow through it. My, uh, my, I have twin boys. I wanted to say my oldest son, but he's technically five minutes younger than his older brother, but he was the bigger of the two twins. And he became a songwriter and has written a lot of songs and uh, eventually did very well in doing that. And, uh, but when he was growing up, I mean, we always had bands in our garage and, you know, musical instruments all over the place. And then Ryan was a musician and Anna was a musician. It was just crazy all the time. And there was a young man in our church that was a, a prodigy musically. He had an amazing voice. And he played the piano. Uh, he played the guitar extraordinarily well. And he saw someone with a mandolin. He pulled it down. Three days later, he could play it. I saw him in church playing it. He was just amazing in terms of any musical instrument. He could pick it up and probably within two or three weeks could play it. And uh, John lived at my house all the time. And we would tease John because John wasn't just, you know, like skinny. He was just like, I mean, turned sideways and John disappeared. And he ate more food than anybody at my house. And we could never figure out, like, what's with John? I mean, you know, he's just eat me out of house and home, and, and Jason would say to me, he said, Dad, you know, John has more natural ability, you know, God-given ability in his little finger than I have in my whole life, and um, I got a phone call, I remember driving in my car, I was pastoring in Santa Cruz at the time, and his mom and dad said, hey, could you come over to the hospital, they've run some tests, and they've admitted John to the hospital, and I think we now know why he's been so skinny, and he had a very, very unusual type of cancer. And I, I can fast forward and I can tell you, I remember um, about nine months later uh, in, a, in a hospital bed that they had put in the lower part of their house after hospice had done all their work, uh, the worship pastor, myself, and his mom and dad and my son, we sat around John's bed and we sang worship songs. And about three days later, I mean, he probably was down to 65 pounds, emaciated, ashen-colored, singing unto the Lord. And... Um, I remember vividly walking out of those French doors of that lower part of their house and sitting in the car with my son, and this was his best friend. Dad, how could a good God let this happen to my best friend? He's got more ability in his little finger than I have in my whole life, and we had these dreams. And, 
And we cried together and we prayed. I'm glad that I taught him a theology of suffering. I didn't have a simple answer. I didn't have this is the way it, it all works out for you. Things are going to be fine. But I could say, you know what, son? In a fallen world where sin is, terrible things happen to really good people. But this isn't all there is. There really is a heaven. And God has a plan for John. Do I get it? Do I understand it? Is it fair? Absolutely not. But he, he turned from that and realized he wanted to do something with his life. He ended up taking one of John's songs and became a number one song in the country. It was a worship song out of, out of his relationship with John. In other words, what does God want to do through suffering? How does he break the shell and then create something beautiful out of it? Christ suffered, giving us an example that we would follow in his steps. Most of us don't know how to suffer well. That's part of the agenda. I will predict that in the coming days in America as a Christian, you will need to learn to suffer well. Your views, your convictions, if you hold them, will become less and less popular, less and less acceptable in the mainstream. You'll be viewed as bigoted. You'll be viewed as intolerant. You may get passed over for jobs. You may uh, not be in the in crowd. And you'll have to ask yourself, because see, in all of the last 2,000 years of following Jesus, apart from a few little pockets here and there, America being one of them for the last 150 years, is most all of Jesus' followers have lived in a world that were completely antithetical to everything they believed. The early church were called cannibals because they shared the Lord's Supper. The early church were called atheists because they didn't worship Caesar, they worshiped God. And we're now coming to a day where it would be more and more important to understand what's it look like to suffer righteously with a great attitude and entrusting ourselves to our faithful creator the way Jesus did. Second thing that God wants to do in you and in your children is teach them to work unto the Lord, a theology of work. And in each one of these, you know, in and, and the more expanded versions, you know, I give you a lot of passages and some real how-tos. But today I just want to give you sort of these five mountain peaks of these are the kind of things that, you know, you can start with your 2-year-old, your 12-year-old, your 22-year-old. Uh, a theology is teach him to work unto the Lord. Work is a calling, not a job. The Latin word for work is vocation. Your vocation wasn't a job, it wasn't a career. It, it comes from the word vocation is a calling. In other words, God calls some people to be plumbers. He calls some people to be software engineers. He calls some people to be stay-at-home moms. He calls some people to be presidents, some people to be pastors. But there's a calling God has a unique design. He has a plan for you. He has a plan for your kids. All work is sacred. In, in, in all of Scripture, there's not like a section of white-collar jobs, blue-collar jobs. We work, and it flows from our unique design and purpose for our lives. Ephesians 2.10 says that you, or your children, are God's workmanship. Literally, it's, it's his masterpiece is the idea. In Greek, it's used for a tapestry or for a poem or a great work of art. You are his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus unto a good work, which God, before the foundations of the earth, designed for you to walk in. God's got a plan for you. He's got a plan for your kids. And we do our work for an audience of one. We work not to please people. We don't work to impress people. Uh, all work is sacred. God is no more pleased with a plumber than he is with a president. 
It is as holy to change a diaper for the glory of God as it is to, you know, develop the next Pentium chip in the Silicon Valley. See, God gives capacities and callings to different people. Our problem is we, when you think about work, here's, here's parents. Sally, Julie, Bob, Ben, whoever. Well, what are you going to do with your life? I don't know. Mom, Dad, what do you think? Well, I just want you to be happy. It's the silliest things parents have ever said. The two extremes of parents today in America, I only want you to be happy or the flip side. Oh, you don't want to do that. You'll never make any money there. 75 to 80% of all American workers hate their job. So people major in things and get into jobs that pay a good salary, that create lifestyles that they can't get out of, and they go to work every day with a TGIF mentality. 65 to 80% of your waking hours, I mean, I've discounted brushing your teeth, taking a shower, and eating food, okay? But once you take care of those things, your waking hours, 65% in the Silicon Valley, probably 80% of your entire life is at work. You think God doesn't have a plan for work? Work is a calling. You need to do what you were made to do. The lie and the myth is, if you do this, it makes you a someone. Scripture says, no, do what you're made to do. Who you are. Help study your kids. What are they good at? Where are their passions? Where has God gifted them? And, and, and you know what? Here's the thing is, <laughs> if they make a little money or a lot of money, if they do what they're called to do, they'll love it. And quote, when you do God's design and plan, happiness is a byproduct. When you say, oh, I don't know what to do, just be happy. Well, I've changed majors four times. I'm on a four-year degree, but I'm in my seventh year. It's a familiar story. But the goal is not to help your kids be happy. God actually, his, his goal is not to make you happy. His goal is for you to fulfill your purpose and calling and design. And when you do that, one of the byproducts is great joy and great happiness regardless of your circumstances. The Old Testament roots are Genesis 2.15 and the only observation here is God in the garden told our original parents, cultivate and work. God works. See, we think work is a, a necessary evil. So necessary evil, Monday through Friday, ah, oh, the weekend. And we live for the weekend and pleasure and for ourselves. And God says, no, 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 no. Don't, don't squander 60 to 80% of your waking hours. Your work is a calling. And that means you do your work unto the Lord. Colossians 3.23 is sort of the New Testament passage. And whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. For it is from God that you receive your reward. And so for those of you that have small kids, you want them to teach them to work early. Um, by the time they're like three, they ought to be helping make their bed. Five or six, they make it on their own. Seven or eight, they're helping with the dishes. Nine or ten, they empty the garage. Ten, eleven, and twelve, they should learn to do their own laundry. They need to be able to cut the grass. I mean, you need to teach your kids how to work. And then when they do a job where, you know, like they sweep it under the carpet or you ask them to do something in their room and they shove all the things in these four drawers so you walk in and it looks okay and you open the closet in a drawer... And then you tell them, you know, and I was the father who did this. My parents were like, oh, God, give me a, dad, give me a break. 
guys, this isn't, you know, you just shoved all this stuff where I couldn't see it so you could go out and play. Okay, do it again. You don't, you're not doing this for me. This room isn't yours. Those clothes aren't yours. They're God's. You're a steward. So I want you to do it as though you were doing this for Jesus. Oh, Dad, give me a break. You teach him to do their work well for an audience of one and that work is a holy and sacred calling. You will set them up for success in every area of their life. Because there's not many people that come to work early, stay the full time. The giant you must help slay in your children, and for most of us in ourselves, is the giant of laziness. You don't hear that word much anymore, do you? It's one of the seven cardinal sins. Laziness. Laziness is the attitude that we all have in our flesh that I want to put in as little time as possible and get as much as possible. So I want to come in late, leave early, make a great salary, not have to work very hard. And that's an attitude. That ad- that's a giant that has to be broken. You want people to understand. Now, you put boundaries around work. Work is not your life. It's not who you are. But you want to teach your kids to work into the Lord. And you want to realize, you know what? If, if I'm on the software project, it's not, it's not for my supervisor. I don't work for Apple. I don't work for Intel. I don't work for Yahoo or Microsoft. I have a supervisor. That's, you know what? That's, well, then, you know, my life goes up and down based on my supervisor and this and that. And I, I work for Jesus Christ. He's my CEO. And I'm going to, my integrity, my effort, my energy, and my excellence, that's what I do. And by the way, when you do that, you'll see God's hand of favor upon your life. You give them jobs early. You study your gifts. You get to know your kids. And then notice that the life message is you were created to work. Um, Help your kids understand it's not TGIF. God made you to work. God works. He wants you to co-create, be creative. He wants you to fix things. He wants you to dream dreams. He wants you to make a difference. He wants you to shape not just all the environment. He wants you to shape your environment. And how do you do that? You do that by working and realizing it's it's a holy privilege from God. Third is teach them to manage their lives wisely. Teach them to manage their lives wisely. It's a theology of stewardship. Uh, Stewardship just means a steward is someone, our word is manager. God has made us managers. Here's a theology of stewardship. One, God owns everything. You might jot down Psalm 50. You could read that. God says, I own everything. The earth is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, everything is mine. God has entrusted things, time, talent, and treasure for us to manage. God is the ultimate venture capitalist. He expects a positive return, right? I mean, if you're going to invest time and energy and money to a, a startup, you, you expect a return. God says, look, I've deposited gifts, education, time, talent, and financial resources, and I'm giving it to you. To some I give five talents, some two talents, some one talent. And so our evaluation isn't on what we produced. It's what did we produce with what we have? Were we faithful and did we develop what we had? God will hold us accountable. He, remember the parable in Matthew 25. The five-talent person developed five more. The two-talent, two more. Both got equal in terms of they both did good with what they had. The one-talent person, do you remember what happened? They hid their talent because they were Anybody remember? Afraid. 
So, we're a manager. Genesis 1, 26-28, God says to this new entity that he made, man, woman, humankind, in a perfect environment, he says, be fruitful, be multiply, co-create with me, change the world, develop, cultivate. Matthew 25 is the parable of the talents. And the application here is help your children become faithful in the little things. Luke 16, 10. Uh, when I say little things, uh, Luke 16, and like I said, I'm just going to kind of give you the mountain peaks. Luke 16 is, is the story of the, uh, the shrewd serpent or the unfaithful steward, as some of your Bibles will say that. And Jesus is telling a parable, and he tells the parable of a, a man who's caught cheating his boss. He had a very wealthy landowner, and he was his steward or his managing, managing his money in his farm. And he got caught with his hand in the till, and he was cheating his boss. And so he found out about it, and he was going to get fired. He kind of got, okay, you know, a week from now, you're going to get fired. And so he thought to himself, what am I going to do? I'm not strong enough to dig ditches, basically, and I'm uh, too proud to beg. And so it says that what he did is he went to each of the accounts you know, one with wheat, one with olive oil. And what he did is he did a side deal. He was very shrewd. And what he did is he worked out a deal so that they would lower what they owed his master so that when he lost his job, they would be indebted to him and they would take care of him financially. Now, Jesus said it wasn't his dishonesty that he applauded what his shrewdness. And then he identifies what was shrewd. He did something in his present situation to prepare him for what was going to happen in the future. And then Jesus says to the disciples, in the same way, you who are not rich toward God, because no one can serve two masters, both God and mammon. And he says, when you use, when you're faithful in the little things, that's Luke 16.10, and the little thing is money. When you're faithful in little things, you'll be faithful also in much. If you're unrighteous in a little thing, money, you'll be unrighteous also in much. And his point is, is that I grew up in probably the first 10 years I was a Christian, I thought there was God and Satan. And Jesus, that's not the way he says. He said there's God and there's money. Money promises security, success, fulfillment. Satan just gets us to believe the lie about money. And he says you can either serve me or serve money, but you can't serve both. And so what you want to do with your kids is you want to teach them to be good managers early on. If I would have had that table, I would have had a little trophy here, you know, for entitlement. For laziness, I would have had a broom. <laughs> and, 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 just, and I would just, you know, I would teach my kids real early, you know, cleaning out the garage. What a pain in the rear. No one sees the back corners. And then for this one, um, I would have three mason jars. Do you know what a mason jar is? canning jars, and on the front of jar number one would say giving, front of jar number two would be savings, and the jar number three would be spending. And when my kids, by the time they were three years old, they had, all of them had three jars on their dresser. And real early on, we do, do little jobs, they get ten pennies, they put one penny in giving, one penny in savings, eight pennies in spending. Then they got a dollar, and they put a dime here, a dime here, and eight dimes there. Then they got ten dollars, a dollar, dollar, eight dollars. Get it, right? Now, I, I understand that there's proportional giving in the New Testament, and as God gives us more, we can give away more than 10%. But I wanted my kids to learn, the reason you give the first 10% is to recognize, I'm just a man, this isn't mine. God owns the eight of spending and the one of savings as much as he owns this one. 
And so I wanted my kids to learn early on handling money well and to do it in advance so that it was a way that they thought about, this isn't my money, this isn't my bike, this isn't my room, this isn't my stuff, this is God's, I'm just a manager. I don't know about you, but um, my, my world has been quite different than I thought. I didn't grow up as a Christian, never dreamed I'd be a pastor. I was a school teacher and basketball coach for a number of years. And then part of my job took me kind of just about everywhere around the world. So I've been in the, the ghetto of Soweto in South Africa and Johannesburg and the slums of Hyderabad, India, uh, the mountain places of poverty in Bolivia, uh, downtown Haiti and sewage going down the street. Uh, I remember driving when I lived in Santa Cruz at times and I'd drive down the coast and I don't know if you've done this recently, but kind of look out and see hundreds and hundreds of people picking fruit They've walked from Guatemala or Mexico. They send most all the money back home. And I've just, I just can't get over at times asking, so why wasn't I born in some of those places? Have you ever thought of it? I mean, why? Why? And, and by the way, those people aren't less important. Believe me, you get to know them. They're not less intelligent. But so why are you, right now, you're in the, the richest place in the entire world is the Silicon Valley. The average income in the Silicon Valley is $258,000. Median. Now, there's a lot of billionaires that are sort of skewing that. If you make uh, $25,000 or less in the Silicon Valley, you give about 6.7% of your income to charitable causes. If you make over $200,000 in the Silicon Valley, you give about 2.4% of your income. There is a correlation between wealth and giving, and it's negative. The more people have, the more miserly they are. You live in the most educated city on the face of the earth. So for reasons you don't know and I don't know, God has deposited five talent sons and daughters here. You're educated, you have wealth, you have jobs, you, you have had experiences, you have opportunity, like less than one-tenth of one percent of all the people on the globe. And your children are growing up in that world, and you don't own any of it. What do you have that you haven't received? And the answer in Scripture is nothing. God will hold you accountable. He wants you to enjoy his joy. He believes that he would awaken a group of people like you to help change the world, to be at Apple or Yahoo or Google and be a light who is strong, that has convictions, that's winsome, that's loving, that's caring, that is a great worker, that suffers well, that works unto the Lord and changes your entire environment. That's why he's put you here. But if you don't get that, and it begins by being faithful in the little things. I, I was telling the, the last service, um, I, I never dreamed, actually, I'd, I prayed about it, but you know, sometimes you pray about something that, I, I actually wrote it on a card in about 1986. I said, um, I was teaching in a small church in Texas, and books had had a huge impact in my life, and I came to Christ late, you know, as an adult, and I remember writing on this card, I made these desire cards, just desires that I had that I thought might be God's will, but I didn't know. God, I desire to write a book that tens of thousands of people would read that would really help them grow closer to you. I wrote that on a card. I just read that over. 
And uh, years later, I went to Santa Cruz, and God did some things where that church grew and he ran out of room, and, and uh, someone asked me to write a book. And I thought, oh, wow, maybe this is the answer to that desire. And so uh, there was a man named Jack who was a, a mentor, and everywhere I've gone, I've tried to find someone whose kids have turned out in a way that I would want, whose marriage is better than mine, you know, 10, 15 years ahead of me, and just I buy him coffee, I invite him to my house, whatever I want to do, uh, I just met with a guy, uh, see, it's Sunday, I guess it was Friday, he's, he's 11 years older than me, I want to be like Glenn 10 years from now, he's the most godly man that I know, and he's finishing well, so no matter where you're at, I've always found... Find who that person is and hang out with them and catch their heart and catch what happens. And so I, this was a guy named Jack, and I was, you know, being mentored by him. And they asked me to write this book, and I was real excited. He goes, well, what are you going to do with the money? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, what if the book does really well? What are you going to do with the money? He goes, I said, I never thought of it. Long story short, he says, I, I, I'd be willing... Um, he had a financial background. I would pay for the first year. It was this group called Ron Blue Incorporated. Let me pay for a year of financial planning. I said, I don't need a financial planner. I got three kids in college. I live in Santa Cruz. I don't have any money. I, you know, I think I got like $800 in, my, in our savings account. He goes, no, no, no. I mean, it's, it's a plan. It's not how much money you have. It's coming with a good plan. And so I met with, you know, he paid for it. I said, well, okay, thanks, you know. And so I meet with this financial planner. And he says, so do you need, do you need the income from a book? Uh, to sustain your livelihood. I said, no, I'm a pastor. We don't, I don't make a ton of money, but it's not bad at all. And so he said, so what do you think God wants you to do with it? I said, I don't know. He said, well, why don't you make the, why don't you and Teresa pray about what to do with any money that might come before any money comes? And then the decision will be what God wants because after you get the money, it's real hard to make those decisions. So why don't you, why don't you figure it out in advance? And if you're following along, you know, in your brain and you have kids, what I'm saying is teach your kids all this early, and what happens is as they get older, it won't be too hard for them. And so we did, and Teresa and I prayed about it. I thought, well, gosh, we don't really need, and, you know, we've asked God to help us. You know, we've learned to give 10%, and then 12, 14, 15, 16, 18%. You know, we, we were on a path to, you know, continually learn how to give and be generous beyond a tithe. And, and so we, did, we prayed, and we had sensed God say, you know, at a minimum, give 50% of all the royalties to the books away. And anything living on the edge had just started, and anything that's sold through living on the edge, so you, you would always know your motives are pure. Anything sold through the ministry, the ministry gets 100% of it. So you never go on the radio and say something, and if something, someone buys something, you can know that you, you don't get any money, you're, you're good. Give it away. And so we decided. And you know what? It was a very easy decision. And I thought, well, maybe I'll write one book or two. I didn't think I'd you know, do 13 or 14 of them. And some of them did pretty well. I'm really glad I made that decision before any of them did anything. And, and, and now I was just, I was my friend who I got to meet with is, uh, he started eight orphanages in Zimbabwe and I had the chance about six or seven years ago as I was in South Africa to go up to Zimbabwe and see all these, what they're doing in these orphanages. See, he was faithful in a very little thing, will be faithful also in much. The little thing is money. You teach your kids to be faithful with money. They'll learn how to be faithful in other stuff. And so, uh, you know, he was thanking me, and I thought, because we made that decision over and above our giving to the church or living on the edge, Teresa and I can give several hundred dollars every month to orphans. Why? Because a mentor helped me be faithful in a little thing, and then when it got to be more, then it was like, I don't, I don't need this to live on. 
See, what happens to most people is your needs get taken care of, and as your income increases, what really happens is your lifestyle increases. And it just takes more and more and more money. Instead of saying, you know what, this is where I want to live, and I, I live very comfortably, but God, as, as I trust you, then anything over and above what I need, why wouldn't I want to help other people? And if you teach your kids to do that, and as you're generous, God amazingly says, give and it will be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. God longs to find, pe some people are dams and some people are streams. A dam, water comes into a dam, it stays there, gets stagnant. Water comes into a stream, it flows through. When God finds people whose hearts are streams, he longs to bless. This isn't a, there's no give to get. There's no prosperity gospel, nothing of the kind. But when God finds that you're generous with your time, he multiplies your time. When you're generous with your talent, he multiplies your talent. When you're generous with your money, he multiplies it if, if you want to use it for his glory to help other people. And uh, uh, the word miser is the root word for miserable. Helping your kids become generous from the heart is one of the best gifts that you ever give them. And the message is, life, uh, your life is a sacred stewardship. Um, I have this picture of my kids knowing that my life, my talent, my treasure, it's not mine, it's a sacred stewardship. I'm managing this talent and this time and this treasure for the God who's entrusted it to me. The fourth one is teach your children to make wise decisions. And uh, they do that by helping them learn to discern good from evil. And this is going to get, I mean, increasingly difficult in the days ahead. Uh, this is a theology of holiness. Uh, scripture is filled with the holiness of God. God is high and holy. And he's totally other. That, I mean, he's separate. He's distinct. He's not like a bigger, grander, larger, the most loving, or the most pure. He's in a completely different category. Uh, God is uh, absolute truth. Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. In Scripture, he's unapproachable light. When anyone comes near the presence of God, they fall flat on their face. There's a sense of this absolute purity and holiness that I think we've, we've really lost a sense of in our day. God's word defines absolute truth. Jesus, the last night on his prayer in John 17, he said, Father, set these disciples apart. Make them holy by your truth. And then he said, your word is truth. God's ultimate uh, goal is um, to make us holy, and one of the big ways he does that is through his laws. H help your kids understand, and for many of us, at least in my, gosh, my late teens, well, I just felt like every command of God was, if there was something fun, he probably had a rule about why you couldn't do it. And I had this idea that God's arms were crossed and he had a blue suit with a badge. He was like a cop and he had this big stick and all he wanted to do was catch me doing something wrong and whack me. And that was the kind of religious background that I grew up in before I opted out of that. And now what I see is when I read, you know, when you read about in the Psalms, you read about what the Apostle Paul would say about the law of God and how they love the law of God. What you understand is their, their boundaries are guardrails to make sure you get the very best. 
So imagine, if you will, sort of a chalet at the top of a mountain. It's got a beautiful pool and a beautiful, you know, view and all the food you can imagine and the best of music and the best of life and the, the best friends and the best family. And this chalet is God's best for your life. But it's at the top of a mountain and, you know, one of those mountains with those windy roads and where, you know, the roads are really narrow and there's a drop-off. You can drop off a thousand feet if you go off the road. Imagine all of God's word, all of his rules, rules about sexuality, rules about money, rules about decisions, rules about your future imagine them as guardrails and they're guardrails that when you get up and you bump up against them the goal is not to keep you from something good the goal is so that you don't go over the edge and experience the devastation and the pain of what happens i've pastored for over 30 years and all i can tell you is when people violate god's laws and whether they violate the laws sexually or in work or integrity or in finances, it just, it just, it's just heartache. People are upside down financially and it ends the divorce. They've had three or four or five partners or they've had an abortion. Or they've, just the pain and the fallout and the hurt. Every law or rule from God is a kind and loving father who puts up a guardrail and says, the reason I put this here is because I long for you to get the highest and the best in relationships, the highest and the best in quality of life, the highest and the best in personal peace, the highest and the best in every area. You're my son. You're my daughter. I gave my son for you. I love uh, the turning point for my life was um, when I was debating with God about whether I should choose my future mate or whether I would let him. And I was on the trail of deciding he could rule every area of my life except my college basketball career and my girlfriend. But, but you know, you got the rest, right? But I didn't think I, he could be trusted with choosing the right girl. And there were certain things he had in stipulations about the kind of girl and the kind of relationship you would have that I really didn't. There was four girls to every guy in my college, and if you were ugly, you could get lots of dates. And uh, so as a guy, it was in the midst of the sexual revolution, and I struggled and struggled and thought, you know, man, I'm going to miss out on everything if I do life God's way. And I remember driving one night. I went out to a little farmhouse, and uh, it was a young couple. They, were, they seemed really old. They were like in their early 30s. <laughs> but when you're 20, that seems really old. And they had these two small little kids, and they invited me. It was a, our campus was out on this kind of beautiful top of a mountain, and there's only about three or 4,000 on campus. And then there was no town or anything, and so... Uh, there was uh, a little farmhouse and drove out to this farmhouse. And they were brand new Christians, like a couple years old in the Lord, and had these two little kids and got a homemade meal. That's why I went for the meal when you're a college guy. And, you know. and so we sat around a little white farmhouse. It's like Norman Rockwell picture, if you can remember what that is all about. And, and they said, well, excuse us for just a minute. And I said, well, sure. You know. And we had, had this meal. We we're going to have apple pie with, that she made and ice cream. And, and so uh, they were actually very, very poor because they didn't have doors. So they had a little sheet that they put on a rope in their small little house, and so you could hear. I wasn't eavesdropping. And they went in, and I watched them, the mom and the dad, get on their knees. And they had two little kids, about a four-year-old, a three-year-old. And they all bowed their heads and joined hands, and I listened to them pray. And then I listened to the little kids pray. And, and you know, I'm, I'm living on this campus where, I mean, you know, there were still guys' dorms and girls' dorms, but it was nothing for a girl to come out of the guy's bathroom, and everyone was sleeping with everyone. And... 
and I'm trying to live this sexually pure life saying, God, this is, this is such a ripoff. Why, why did you give me these hormones and all this stuff? And this is what, you know, like this is like, is this a sad joke? Why couldn't I become a Christian like at 25 instead of like, you know, like 20, you know? And, you know, and I could really enjoy these college years, you know? And, and uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, uh, all these rules just felt like prohibition, prohibition, limitation. And I, I remember listening to them and, and, you know, even as we were eating, they had this kind of gleam in their eye like, man, they seem like they've been married like 10 years and, man, they really are, they really like each other. They love each other. They're kind of, I mean, like when I leave, I think they're going to have a good time. I mean, I'm the, well, I didn't know married couples still did that stuff, you know. I didn't know what I, and then I, and then I, and then I, I, I heard them pray. And as they heard, heard them pray, I remember thinking to myself, I was sitting alone at the little table, one of the linoleum with the sticky chairs. Everything was cheap. I still remember it. And I remember thinking, God, that's what I want. That's what I really want. I want a wife that I would have that kind of relationship with. I want someday to have kids that I would have that. And it was like God whispered, Chip, I want it for you more than you want it. But I'm the king of the universe, and I want you to trust me. And, you know, I was so, I had this little green Volkswagen driving back to campus, and I was arguing with God, and, you know, you know, I just, I'll miss out on too much, blah, 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 blah. And I was just learning to memorize scripture. And as I was pulling down um, Steep Hill, everything's a steep hill in West Virginia, a steep hill down to my dorm, and a verse that I'd memorized, it was, it was Romans 8.32, He that spared not his own son, how will he not with him freely give us all things? And I mean, a little light went on in sort of the logic of, okay, I love you so much, Chip, that I would let my son die in your place. And you don't think that I have your best interest in mind, that doing life my way and obeying me, walking a holy life, will produce the highest and the best of what you just saw. And I got to the bottom of that little parking lot in front of my dorm, and I made one of the biggest decisions of my life. I'm going to make discerning decisions. I will live a pure life. I will wait for the right girl in the right way and the right time. And i got to tell you, I'm so glad I did. Teach your kids to discern good from evil. Exodus 3, Moses comes before the presence of God. He says, this is holy ground. 1 Peter 1, he says to a church in persecution, he says, "Um, do not any longer be controlled by the former lust which were yours in your ignorance, speaking about before they were Christians. But like the holy one who called you, be holy in all your behavior because it is written, because I am holy, you should be holy. And, and I think the life message here is obedience is the only way to get God's best. Obedience to God's word, to, to God's holiness, is the only way to get the highest and best. And God wants that for all of us. The final one here is um, teach them to live grace-filled lives. As I thought about this, I thought of what the giants were, and I thought, you know, a sense of being entitled in it, learn to suffer well. And then I thought of um, kind of laziness 
is a giant that is just so hard. Teach him to work into the Lord. I'd say one of the huge giants everywhere, but especially in the Silicon Valley, is materialism. And the only way you slay that is you, you teach your kids that they're a manager and they learn to give generously. And then I think, uh, you know, I think one of the, the huge giants of our day, and we're seeing it more and more, is going to be compromise. The old biblical world is worldliness. And um, to, be a, to be holy means that you're separate, not out of the world, but your values, your convictions are what God says, not what the world says. And then finally, I think if there's one that hangs over, especially Christians, is I think there's a giant of shame. I think um, people can feel like they've got to have it together, and when they fail, they're done, and that God's down on them, and you're unworthy. And um, I want to define here what God's grace is, but I, I want you to know that the, the, the big message that you want to teach your kids and God, your heavenly father, wants to teach you is that failure is never final. Um, grace is this. Grace is the unconditional and unmerited love of God toward us. Uh, grace is costly to God, but it's free to us. Scripture says, do you not know you've been bought with a price? You are so valuable to God that he would allow the blood of his son to be spilled as the purchase price for you. The cross is God's greatest act of grace. Romans 5.8 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, or literally it's in our place. Salvation is a free gift from God, and grace produces gratitude toward God and love toward others. And even in the very beginning in Genesis, the roots of grace after our first parents sin, what does God do? He covers them. And he had to shed blood to do it. And he put skins around them. And it was a prefigure of how God, there would be shed blood to cover or atone for us. And grace just means that it's not, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So what grace means is that it is free. God loves you not if you do something or because you've done something, but God loves you because of his own heart towards you, and grace is epitomized in that on a certain day at a certain time about 2,000 years ago, Jesus hung on a cross, and your sin and my sin and the sins of all the earth were placed on him, and he became our sin atonement. We have a sinful man over here and a holy God over here and he bridged the chasm and he took your sin and my sin and he covered it once and for all. So all people of all time, their sins have been paid for, the Bible teaches. Now everyone has been made savable. In other words, the sins have been forgiven. That's why the gospel is not go and convince people about this, 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 and this and try and get them to do that. The gospel, the word gospel is good news. The good news is your sins are paid for. Christ paid for them. God loves you. He wants a relationship. He's bridged the gap. But you have to turn from your sin and in the empty hands of faith receive Christ as your Savior so that his blood and his work will be applied to your life. It's like God has purchased a ticket for everyone to have relationship with him and to be into heaven forever. But by faith, you have to receive the ticket. You personally have to. I, I grew up in an environment where these words were thrown around and no one lived the life. I had no idea of a personal relationship with God. God's ultimate desire is an intimate, deep, personal relationship with you. 
And eternal life isn't something that happens after you die. Eternal life is a quality of life that goes on forever. Jesus in his last prayer said, this is eternal life, that you might know him, Jesus, and the Father who sent him. And so it's about breaking down the wall so that God the Father and you can have deep, intimate, personal relationship. And it's free. You can't earn it. You don't have to pray so many times a day. You don't give X amount of dollars. You don't give to United Way. There's not some level. It is free. But what happens then, his life begins to be produced inside of you. The application is help your children realize that failure is never final. You were made life message both to receive grace and to give grace. I, um, I married a, a very, very beautiful woman. Every husband says that, but if he doesn't, something's wrong because God gives us eyes to see the one that we love in ways that are how he made our hearts to beat. But my wife, before um, I met her, she came from a non-Christian, very dysfunctional, alcoholic home, and as many young women do, they run to a man, and so she got married very early, put him through college. He found out that he could make more money selling drugs and doing some other things in his job, and then he had a girlfriend on the side that she didn't know about for about a year and a half or two. And when she got pregnant with twin boys, he decided that he didn't want responsibility, and so he left to another state with this other woman. And um, uh, she was devastated and uh, literally contemplated suicide but felt like killing herself would be really rough on these two brand-new babies. And in her desperation, uh, far from God, her boss led her to the Lord. And for the next two and a half years, um, she out of that adversity became one of the most beautiful flowers that I'd ever seen. She learned to trust God. There was, a, there was a fragrance about her life that was just so attractive to me. And so I got to know her, and because of her background and these two little boys, I prayed God would give her a husband the first year I knew her because I was not interested in becoming a father. But we became friends. And then when I was playing basketball around the world and complaining to God about I'm really ready to get married, you know, like I'm almost 25, you know, that felt really old back then. My oldest son got married at 29, so I guess you can certainly get married a lot older than 25, but I was uh, feeling, you know, desperate. Um, none of you have ever felt that, I'm sure, but I was feeling very desperate. And I was in Krakus, Venezuela, complaining to God, and I heard the Holy Spirit whisper, well, what about Teresa? I said, well, she's got two kids. And the Holy Spirit, literally, I heard him say, almost an audible voice, well, haven't you been praying that God would give her a husband and a dad? I said, well, yeah. Well, don't you think I could give you the ability to be that? Well, I don't know. <laughs> well, are you attracted to her? Well, yeah. Um, do you think if I gave you the grace, you could be a good dad? And I just remember a little light came on. I said, yeah, I, I think I could. And I mean, I had been just like rigidly, like, I mean, I was super attracted to her, but it was like, you know, you've all been one of those, like, do not enter, do not get close, <laughs> you, you know. You know, and the other was she was really hurt, and I just thought if I, if I have any emotional relationship and then she gets disappointed again, I just felt like it would crush her. And so unless I got a green light from God, I, I mean, we didn't date, friend, Bible study, spiritual songs, you know. And I remember I went back to my hotel room, 
And I wrote her a note and said, you know, I was thinking and praying, and I didn't ask her to marry me or anything like that. I said, you know, when I come back, I, I'd like to get to know you a lot better, and maybe, maybe even more than a friend. Well, I didn't know God had already spoken to her, and she thought we were going to get married too. My whole life as my wife knows what's happening, and I just, you know, she and God just sort of, you know, tell me what to do. And uh, so I literally, like, by the, I, we played in about seven or eight more countries in the next six weeks, but like every day, by the time I landed in America, I was just head over heels in love with her. And so I drove straight from the airport to her house, and, you know, we got married about a, a year later, because it was, it was in an era that was very, very difficult. And um, she's just the most godly person, most wonderful person I'd ever met. And yet the first 10 years of our um, marriage, my wife always felt like a second-class citizen. She'd been divorced. And it was an era that if you were divorced, you were like, you know, second-class citizen. Uh, in seminary, I remember God led us to go to seminary to become a pastor. And uh, it was about a year in, and she was talking to one of the other seminary wives and felt free and told her story, like for the first time, you know. This is my testimony. This is what God did. And this gal looked at her and said, well, I didn't know God. The seminary would let people like you in here. And uh, in our first church, she just, she wouldn't tell anybody her story. I mean, the elders knew, cause, but it was like she was ashamed and felt like she was a failure. I remember going through a, a journey. Uh, it was a special leadership thing that we both went through, and my wife got a truth from God that radically changed her life, our history, and all that happened. And someone explained to her that when you fail, and whether it's a pornography addiction or a drug addiction or a marriage or an abortion or whether you lied or whether you had an affair on the road, whatever it is, when you fail and when you come and repent and you bring that to your heavenly father, he washes it and completely forgives you. And then he's on this journey of repairing and restoring you. And he, in heaven, he has this big mantle. And what you are, you're a trophy of his grace and he sticks you up on the mantle so that people understand how real and how wonderful and what grace really is. It's not a concept. And so Paul, the murderer, becomes the apostle. Rahab, the prostitute, becomes in the lineage of Jesus. Shame has no power. Don't let your kids believe that failure is final. God restores. He forgives and as you live out and tell people honestly where you've been and what he has done, people will see the grace of God and you will experience it. Lord, thanks for the chance to be here at Awakening. God, I had a very, very clear sense there's people in the room in this service that have experienced and are living in tremendous shame. And I would ask you, Lord Jesus, that you would penetrate their heart, that you would allow them to feel, not just know intellectually, but to feel how proud of them you are, how clearly and completely you've forgiven them, and how you want to restore them and love them. God, I thank you that there are no second-class citizens. I thank you that the greatest ministry Teresa has ever had is to people who feel like they're safe with her because she's been broken. God, thank you that it's in our weakness that your grace and your power is perfected. So, Lord, would you restore us? Would you help us to be kids that would believe that you want to shape our lives to be like Jesus? Would you help us to be parents that teach our kids to suffer well and work into the Lord, to make wise decisions, 
to manage their wealth wisely, and to live grace-filled lives.